Well, we thank you, Greg, and those that serve with him and leading us and worship every single Sunday morning and the blessing that we get to be recipients of and being able to come and to worship in such a way. Thank you so much for everything that you do. Hope you have a Bible with you this morning, and I want you to join me in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to continue walking through this letter written under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit through the pen of Peter to the early church in that day. And so 1 Peter chapter 3 is where we're going to continue on the back. Hopefully when you came in and got a bulletin or a worship guide on the back of that, there's some notes that if you want to reference those during our, during our time together in the Word, I would welcome you to do that. But we're going to be primarily in 1 Peter chapter 3. I also would just ask you to keep your Bible open. We're going to be turning a couple other places, or if nothing else, you can just write down some of these references there in the margin of your notes, or the margin of your Bible, just to uh, kind of something to go back to think about, to use later on in your study, and so if you just keep your keep your Bible open, be ready if you want to write some stuff down, if that interests you, just to let you know um, that it's coming. The preacher began an illustration talking about a forest fire in California, 1993 forest fire sprung up there in the California wilderness area about 45 miles off the coast of the Pacific Ocean and the fire, the fire was spreading quickly. The firefighters were desperate to try to suppress the fire to keep it from growing into a wildfire and growing out of control. They were successful after the help of the helicopters and the help of the planes and the help of the firefighters and the forestry service. They were able to keep it from being uh, too much of a problem and damaging too many, uh, too many houses or livelihoods. Later, as the forestry service was going in, making their survey, as the preacher tells the story, they found a, a fatality. A body of an individual that was perched about six foot above the ground in, on, on a tree limb. Now this person had deceased or had died and so they really didn't have a means of identification so they uh, were able to track down through dental records and find um, the identity of the person and to notify the next of kin. But what was very peculiar about the situation was that the individual was in a full wetsuit. Not only was the individual in a full wetsuit but it was complete with the flippers, the scuba tank, the scuba mask, all of the things that you would think of would be true about a person that was scuba diving was present about this person. And not just that this person was dressed in such a way, but that the person had also been burned through the course of the fire, that the exterior was burned. And so they took the body, the forestry service took, recovered the body, took it to get an autopsy done. And during the course of the autopsy, it was determined that the individual did not die from the fire. But the individual died from massive eternal injuries. And so it was concluded that during the course of the suppression and the fighting of the fire, that there was this individual... 45 miles away in the Pacific Ocean, minding his own business, going out for an afternoon scuba dive, when suddenly he goes from doing the breaststroke in the Pacific to doing the breaststroke in the bucket, then to doing the breaststroke as he's free-falling through the air and ended up contributing his part of the fire suppression in extinguishing 5 foot 10 inches of the fire. And the reason the preacher told the story was to drive home a point that no matter where you're at in your life, somebody has it worse than you. There is always somebody 
that has a better story than you of how bad their life is. Now, I was fascinated by the story when I heard the preacher tell the story. And I thought, oh my gracious, that is such an amazing story. And then I went to look and it is actually a myth. It is actually an urban legend. It's not even true. But it makes an, an, an incredible imagery and it's an incredible illustration to remind us that no matter where we're at in our life, trouble comes. And you know, sometimes in the world and sometimes, especially in the church world, sometimes we start to think that because that we're believers in Jesus Christ or because we go to church or because we are born or into a, in a certain demographic area or because we have a certain attitude, because we have a certain opinion or a certain identity, therefore we should be immune from some problems that other people are facing. And then we also have a tendency to feel sorry for ourselves when the troubles or the trials come. Well, Peter is writing to this early church, an early church that is facing persecution, an early church that is facing opposition, an early church that is facing suffering. I put there in your notes, they are facing adversity. I use the word adversity for, their, for the precise reason because when you talk about suffering, everybody suffers. Oh my gracious, it was 72 degrees in the sanctuary. Oh, I was suffering. Well, you know what? Sometimes that suffering does not compare to the people that haven't ate in three days. You know, there's a lot of different levels of suffering. There is a lot of different levels of persecution. And there are a lot of things that come around us. So instead of trying to uh, wade into some of the misdefinitions or some of the uh, misused definitions, I just want to stick to this idea of adversity this morning. And so Peter is writing to this church to remind them that the adversity that they're facing as a church, one, is not new. One, is not as troubling as it might seem. But to also give them encouragement and instruction on how it is that they live with Adversity. Sometimes we as a church need to be reminded that when we're living in this world that we're going to be faced with the trials and the troubles of this world. And our adversity might not be all the same in the same story, but I want to assure you that every single one of us in this room have faced adversity, are facing adversity, or will face adversity in the very near future. So it is incumbent, it is important for us as a body of believers to then think, how does God want us to face adversity well? Well, that's what Peter is going to write to here in 1 Peter chapter 3. He's going to pick it up in verse 13. And he is going to write to the church about the adversity that they are facing. And more importantly, to carry on this theme that Peter has been using. He's been telling them, listen, this is how you live differently in the world. This is how God's people live differently in light of the environment and the circumstances around us. This is how we all come together in this room as believers in Jesus Christ. And we say, this is the difference the world should see in us. Or for the lost people, and I've talked about this several weeks, for the lost people that may be in the room, you come and say, this is what difference God's people should be like. And we think about then what does it mean for us as a faith family in the community in which we're in, and we think about this, that this is what the world should see in us. This kind of difference. And it's easy to be different when it's easy. It's easy to be different when there's no opposition. It's easy to be different when there's no challenges. It's easy to be different when it's comfortable. When the adversity comes, what do people see in us? 
So pick it up there with me. If you'll read along as I read aloud out of 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 13. Listen to how the Holy Spirit inspires the pen of Peter. He starts there in verse 13 and he says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. I'm going to stop right there for the sake of time this morning, and we're going to primarily focus in on these verses and just look at what Peter has to tell us about how it is that we live differently in the face of adversity. Go back up to verse 13, and I want you to see with me that he talks about that adversity is universal. Adversity is not something that is just something that you are facing. Adversity is not something that someone else faces. All of us face adversity on one level or another. There may be some in this room that may say, Spence, you don't understand what I'm going through. Spence, you don't understand what I've dealt with. Spence, you don't understand where I've come through. I may not understand. I don't have to understand. I'm not your savior. I'm not your Lord, but I can tell you on the authority of Scripture that God knows, and God knows the adversity that you're in. God's sovereignty sees it. So there in verse 13, he asks the question, who is there to harm you? And it's a question sometimes we need to wrestle with. We're facing this world today and there's all kinds of political upheaval. There's all kinds of social upheaval. And there's all kinds of discrepancies and differences of opinions when it comes to some of the medical practices and some of the medical mandates and expectations that are being put on you. And some people would say, well, I can't do that because that would cause me harm. And there's some people saying, well, I can't perform that because that will cause me harm. And all these things. And Peter comes in and says, let's just think about it through a spiritual sense. Not through a physical sense. Not through a government sense, not through a cultural sense, who is it that can really harm you? And here I would ask the question, who is it that can harm your soul? There's not a person in this room that can harm your soul. There is not a single vaccine that can harm your soul. There is not a single piece of policy that can harm your soul. There is nothing this side of eternity that can make a difference for your eternity in heaven. And so sometimes we think of adversity as, oh, it's the end of the world. Oh, I can't handle it. Oh, it can't get any worse. And Peter comes in and wants to remind them, hey, let's just think about this from a spiritual sense. What is there really that can harm you? There is nothing in this world that can harm me. The only thing that this world can do is hasten my homecoming to heaven. There is nothing this world can do to take away my eternal security in heaven. There is nothing this world can do to keep me out of the hands of God. There is nothing. I realize that long days at work, cold temperatures at work. I was talking to Jake and Jackson about them going up in Colorado and it was zero degrees. They had to move snow just to set up a tent. No! <laughs> I'm not there. That's not my thing. But I'm going to tell you that no matter what the adversity is, no matter what you're experiencing, none of that, nothing can keep your soul from God. 
Brothers and sisters, sometimes we get so fixated on the physical that we miss the spiritual. Sometimes we get so fixated on the today and the temporal that we miss the eternal. And so Peter wants to remind them that this idea of adversity, oh, it's universal. Everybody is going to face some level of adversity. Living in a fallen world brings trouble. He says, now who is to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even, even if you suffer for righteousness sakes, you will be blessed. He, he identifies and he acknowledges. Some people are getting the wrong end of the stick. Some people aren't being treated the way they think they should be treated. But he wants to remind us all that problems come to all people. Why do problems come to all people? Because all people are living in a sinful world. That's how this whole setup started in Genesis chapter 3. God tells Adam, don't eat of the fruit. Tell Eve, don't eat of the fruit. What happens? Eve eats the fruit. Adam eats the fruit. Sin enters in the world. A certain level of corruption enters in the world. A fallen state enters into the world. And so now the ripple effects of that, the results of that, the dominoes that have fallen because of that, is the sin in the world brings corruption. It brings death. It brings carnality. It brings all of the things that come with a humanistic mindset. And a lot of the things, if not most of the things that we are seeing today, is the result of sinful people acting in sinful ways. So sometimes the adversity is just because there's sin in the world. Sometimes adversity is just simply because of the times in which we're living in. But he reminds you. He reminds you there in verse 14. But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. I think of Peter thinking back to the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament pictures you had, you had these patriarchs in the Old Testament. And you could tell who was being blessed by God and who wasn't being blessed by God because of their wealth. Because of the material possessions. So you think back to Abraham. And the Bible talks about God was heavily favoring Abraham. And you could see that because of his possessions. Because of his wealth. Because of all the things that he was doing. Then you think about Jacob. And how God was blessing Jacob. And that was seen in the number of sheep. And the number of oxen. And the number of children he had. And the number of this and this and that. In the Old Testament. Favor of God was seen by the possessions of man. And sometimes we're living in a day and age today. That we have that Old Testament picture. Oh, you got a lot of money, that must mean God likes you. Oh, you got an easy job, that must mean God likes you. But then we also think the opposite is true. You have a flat tire, it's because God doesn't like you. You got fired from your job, it's because you have sin in your life. You're having a tough time, you get a bad diagnosis, what have you done wrong? We start to carry that Old Testament ideal into a New Testament reality. So as Peter is looking back to the Old Testament, he also wants to inform the church that guess what? In a New Testament picture, in a new covenant environment, and in a reality, not all suffering is because of sin. In fact, struggles aren't always curses. As a follower of Jesus Christ, you will face adversity. Why do you say that, Spence? Because Jesus said that. Write down, jot down there in your margin, John 16 and verse 33. Let me read to you what Jesus says to his followers the night before he was betrayed. He looks at them in verse 33 and he says, I have said these things to you that in me you have, may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus looks at his followers and saying, listen, being part of my 
church, being a disciple of mine, being a believer of mine, being in the world today, you will face tribulation. You will face adversity. And so brothers and sisters, we need to know when it comes time and we have those headwinds, when we fight those battles, when we feel like the whole world is against us, when we are dipping and straggling that sand out of our face, we need to understand that adversity is universal. So Peter opens it up, this, this, this passage, this thought. He says, remember church, Adversity happens to all of us. So then what does he want us to do? Well, the last, the second part of verse 14, notice what he says. He picks it back up in the second sentence and he says, Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Can you imagine if every single one of us in this room actually lived that? The diagnosis, the political upheaval, the social unrest, the immorality in the world around us, the behaviors and the disciplines of this next generation coming up. The filth that we see on television, the influence, the manipulation, the deception that we see on social media. The lies, the mistruths, the mishaps when it comes to the values and the principles of God. Can you imagine if we, as God's people, said, you know what? We are not going to be troubled by this world. We are going to have faith in God. He says, have no fear of them or be troubled. He said that those adversities, when they come, we're not going to ignore them. We're not going to deny them. We're not going to say they don't exist. What I want you to do is I want you to understand that adversity is not the focus. Adversity is not the focus. Notice he goes on in verse 14. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. So then what am I supposed to do, Peter? I get a negative diagnosis from the doctor. And he says, this thing is aggressive. He says, this thing is fast moving and we got to take actions now. And you're telling me, Peter, that I'm not supposed to be focused on that? I get a letter from the IRS saying I'm being audited. And I'm going to go back and find four years ago my receipts and my transactions and justify what I did. You think I'm not supposed to be focused on that? They tell you that you can't speak for your belief and your religious held convictions in the workplace. And I'm not supposed to be focused on that. You don't understand what my children are being exposed to in culture. You don't understand what lies are being spread and you don't think I'm supposed to be focused on that. Peter says, no you're not to be focused on the adversity because the focus should be on God. Where do you get that from Spence? Well listen in verse 15. He says but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. As, as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. He's, he's reminding them that when it comes to the adversity in their lives, the point of the adversity is to point people to God. The point of your adversity is to point people to God. So when people look at you they say, you know what, they're really having a time of it. They're really struggling right now. They're really dealing with a lot of things in their life but how are they making it through? How do they survive? How do they keep a good attitude? How do they keep smiling? How do they keep an upbeat heart? How can they be optimistic in light of what is going on? God go to the grocery store yesterday morning, Jaylene and I do, and you know, this season of our life, sometimes the grocery store is the most romantic place that we get during the course of a common week. So I go to the grocery store, not because she needs me there, just because I want to spend some time with my beautiful wife, and so we're going to the grocery store, and you know, quite frankly, I've just kind of checked out. I'm pushing the cart, and I'm following along, I'm doing that kind of stuff, and my mind's doing other stuff, and I'm thinking about this, and I'm thinking about that. I'm just kind of wrestling, like, God, what do you want to do here? God, where are you going here? And God, yeah, I just, I've just got these questions going through my mind. 
And right about the biggest heat of all these questions bouncing around inside of my mind, here comes this man. He kind of looks like Hayden. And he, he comes around the end of the aisle and he's got this shirt on. And he just said, God's got this. And he's just bebopping along through the, going, going through the grocery store. He's just bebopping along. And I just read the shirt and I just think, Spence, what am I doing? I'm sitting here wondering. I'm sitting here fretting. I'm sitting here worrying. I'm sitting here giving all this thought. God's got this. Why am I going to get all worked up about everything that is going on? May I tell you, brothers and sisters, the donkey or the elephant doesn't have the answers. The medical community does not have the answers. Our educational system does not have the answers. Our society and our culture does not have the answers. The majority of psychology and psychiatry doesn't have the answers. And yet we can get so worked up, so worried about everything that is going on that we forget that God's got this. And I think that's what Peter is trying to remind the church. He's writing to the church there in modern day Turkey and he's reminding them that you know what? I realize that you're going through a lot. I realize that you have a lot in front of you. I realize that you're dealing with a lot of adversity in your life. But do not forget God's got this and when it comes to the adversity let the focus of your adversity be on God. In other words the purpose is greater than the emotion. He's reminding them that yes you're going to have all these emotions. Oh I'm so sad. Oh I'm so upset. Oh oh I don't deserve this. Oh why me? Oh why not them and, and why why am I the only one and this is my cross to bear and all these things and he said don't miss it that the purpose is greater than the emotion not your emotion it does not have validity in some points but the purpose of why you're going through the adversity is greater than the emotion that you're feeling in the adversity he says it's holy always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you can you imagine us living through this world and people coming and saying how can you smile I'm not smiling because of my circumstance I'm smiling because of my savior how can you get out of bed in the morning I don't get out of bed because of myself I get out of bed because of himself Oh, why can you have such a good attitude? I don't have a good attitude because I have all I want. I have a good attitude because I have an awesome God. And he reminds us, he, he points us that this adversity, the focus of the adversity is not on the person, it is on the Savior. So he reminds them, verse 16, having a good consciousness when you are slandered. Those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. He reminds us that God's glory is greater than your feelings. It's greater than your feelings. The idea that you and I want to be able, no matter what the situation we're in, want to be able to point and say, I am what I am because of who he is. Brothers and sisters, sometimes we can get locked up in this life of adversity and struggles and setbacks. And I realize the wide variety in this room. And we could sit around and we could tell stories after stories after stories after stories. I talk about the person, he's always the harder, stronger, faster person. And no matter what story you tell, they've always got a story to up your story. And we can sit around and we can tell story after story about all the things you've dealt with and all the things you overcome and all the things you've struggled with. And I'm not trying to belittle any of that. I'm just trying to tell you that it doesn't matter about my story or your story or my, my, my problems or your problems. The focus should be on our God. In other words, people should see our faith before they see our fret. 
Fret is just a word to say your worry, your anxiety. Talk about Matthew chapter 6 or Philippians chapter 4. You might write those down. Both of those passages talk about our anxiety and our worry in this world. They tell us do not be anxious. Do not be fretful. Do not do any of those things because why? Because God's got this and no matter what happens, if you're a believer, you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're still going to heaven. So Peter wants to remind them. The universality of the adversity, the focus of the adversity. But then he also goes in, in the verse, verse 17, and he reminds them that adversity is revealing. That adversity is revealing. You look back up there in verse 17, and he says, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. He wants to remind them that their suffering may come. But it would be much better For the testimony of the believer to say, you know what, I faced obstacles, I faced adversities, not because of the sin in my life, not because of the rebellion in my spirit, not because of my hard-headedness or my my knuckle-headedness, I faced adversity, not because of my wrong, but I faced adversity because Christ counted me worthy of the challenge. That God counted me worthy of the refinement, worthy of the correction, worthy to point people to him. Notice he says, for Christ also suffered one, I'm not sorry, verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will. Let me remind you this morning that God's will is God's glory. What do you mean, Spence? God's will is God's glory. Well, a lot of people are asking the question, what is God's will for my life? Well, I wish somebody could tell me God's will for my life. And so you find some of these things, and I don't mean to get on your toes, but I'm just going to tell you, if you get the text message on a regular basis from the Jesus calling people, you need to stop. That's not based upon God's will for your life. There are, there are a lot of things, there are a lot of self-help books, and there's a lot of deceptional lies out there that say, well, this is what God's will is for your life. And there are people that are making tons of money because you say, I want to know what God's will is for my life. And then I come to you and I say, well, if you just sign up for my text messaging service, if you just read my book, I'll tell you what God's will is for your life. And God is sending them back there and going, you know what? You don't need to go to Spence to find out God's will for your life. You can just come to my word. And there's a lot of people in this world today that are making money off of the innocence and the naive of the people around him. And you say, well, I need what God's will in my life, so I'm just going to go to that person because that person can tell me what God's will is for my life. I'm going to tell you this morning, brothers and sisters, friends, beloved, you don't have to go to a person to find God's will for your life. You can go to God to find God's will for your life. Well, well, Spence, I just don't know. It's hard for me to, it's hard for me to discern. It's hard for me to understand what God's will is for my life. I'm going to tell you what God's will is for your life. Write down 1 Corinthians 10 31. You don't have it memorized, so let me tell you what it says. So whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He is saying that what God's will is for your life is that for your life to give glory to God. For your life to give glory to God. In fact, he echoes that here in 1 Peter chapter 3. And he said, if that should be God's will. He's reminding them that God's will is God's glory. So what do you mean, Spence? I'm saying that God's will is for God's glory to be seen. For God's glory to be received. For God's people to glorify him with their lives. That is God's will. Well, then how do I do that, Spence? It means that your daily lives are focused on him. All of your day is centered around him. I don't know if he's still there, but one of the people I work with had tickets to the NASCAR races this weekend. He said, Vince, you want to go to the NASCAR races? I said, no, I, I, don't, I don't. No, thank you. Well, I've got infield track passes. 
No, I, I, no. I mean, you can catch all the races. I, no. Because, you know, there's something I, uh, my opinion, my observation is that when you go to those things, you're locked in. You're there. Everything revolves around that track and what happens on that track. Everything is fixated on that. You go to an, another athletic event, whether it's a basketball game or a football game, everything is designed to be focused on that field of play. And right now, when we wake up in the morning, either we can put before us the desires, the will, the wishes of God, or we can put before us the desires, the wills, and the wishes of this world. And so it becomes about what we are going to be fixated on. And so Peter says that in the face of adversity, adversity is not to be debilitating. Diversity is not to be defeating. Adversity is meant to be revealing because in that adversity, you show whose glory you're living for. He says in verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. Sometimes people think, well, if I'm going to get in trouble for it, I might as well be guilty of it. And sometimes we have that attitude. Well, you know what? If I'm going to pay the penalty, I might as well go ahead and enjoy the benefit. And he's telling you that sometimes you're facing adversity not because you deserved it, not because it is something that you want. You're facing adversity so you can bring glory to God. And people will get in those seasons and go in those stages of life and they'll say, well, that isn't fair. You know, my household, that we hear that a lot. And we always just tell them, the fair is in September. It's not a matter about what is fair because the reality is, is that the definition of fair is very relative. <laughs> the iPhone 4 came out. I need a new phone. I got the iPhone 4. iPhone 5 comes out. Somebody else gets the iPhone 5. Well, that's not fair. I don't have the iPhone 5. It's all relative. And as soon as the next trinket, as soon as the next gadget comes out, oh, well, that's not fair. I don't have this. That's not fair. I don't have that. And it's all these things. Our definition of fair is always shifting from place to place to place. So Peter is reminding the church, he's reminding us in this place this morning that our adversity is revealing of the glory for who we are living for. He's reminding us that we demonstrate our faithfulness to God and how we live for him in the face of adversity. In the times when it is not easy and the times that it is a struggle, that is is where people see God's glory in us. Sometimes the most revealing way that we can show God's glory is through the most darkest, difficult times of our lives. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Peter, sorry, Paul, has been plagued with this thorn in the flesh. Commentators have, a lot of ink has been spilled on paper trying to assume and try to guess postulated what this thorn was. Nobody really knows what the thorn was. So if you ever hear a preacher say, I can tell you what the thorn is, be careful. So you know, no one knows what the thorn is. But we do know, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, that Paul is pleading with the Lord. It's like this, the language there is he's got this attitude of desperation for all the things that he has done for the Lord, all the ways that he has served for the last 30 or 40 years, all the missionary journeys that he's been on, all the adversities that he has faced, all the physical persecution that he has undergone, all the faithfulness that he has given to the Lord, and yet he has this thorn in the flesh. We don't know exactly what it is, but it was something of such a great affliction in his life that he is sitting there pleading, begging, Petition before the Lord. Lord, please take this. It says in verse 8 of 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Three times I plead with the Lord about this. That this should leave me. But he said to me. My grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Can you imagine this? Paul. 
Paul, 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 one of the giants of Mount Rushmore of the faith, and he is pleading and he is begging, oh, Jesus, please take this away from me. And Jesus says, my grace is sufficient. My power is made perfect in weakness. And so you can imagine, Paul would have all the right to then pout. <laughs> he would have all the right to then say, well, that's not fair. He had all the right to say, well, I'm not going to continue serving you. He would have all the right to say, well, that, 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 that isn't what I signed up for. He'd have all the right to sit down, mope and pope, and get a long face. But what, is, what, what does Paul do? Therefore, therefore I boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You hear the testimony that comes to the voice of Paul. He is saying, you know what? I don't like my situation. I wouldn't wish for my situation. But you know what? God can use my situation to bring him glory. And if God uses my situation to bring him glory, I'm all for it. And brothers and sisters, sometimes we run from adversity when God is seeking to use that adversity to bring glory to Him. He's seeking that opportunity in our lives to point other people to Him. Our attitude reveals our priority, reveals our faith, reveals our hope, and reveals our heart. So Peter is writing into this church and he says, you need to understand, adversity is across the board. But what the purpose of adversity is, is to focus on God, not to focus on the adversity. And during the adversity, it reveals your heart, it reveals your attitude. So then, what should we do? Verse 18, for Christ also suffered once for the sins of the righteous, or suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. And the last thing that Peter wants to remind us this morning is that adversity should not be surprising. No one in this room should be surprised when the adversity comes. Not that we should desire it, not that we should wish for it, not that we should pray for it, not that we should ask for it. But we shouldn't be surprised when the adversity comes. Why should we not be surprised? Because our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ faced adversity. So why do we think that we should be better than Him? Why do we think that we should have it easier than him? Why do we think that we should have something that he didn't have? Why do we think that we get to short circuit the system when Christ paid for the system? Why do we think that we get a cheat code when he is paying full price? So he reminds us Christ also suffered. He also faced adversity. But why did he face adversity? He didn't face adversity because of his sin. He didn't face adversity because of the sin of his parents. He didn't face adversity because of the sin of his children. He didn't face adversity because he had sin and brought sin to the world. He faced adversity because of our sin. The reason why Christ faced adversity was because I'm a knuckle-headed sinner. And because you, for all the show and for all the niceties, you've fallen short as well. And he came and he suffered so that we might have hope and salvation in him forever. In fact, he says that there in the verse. Notice he says he suffered for the sins of, he suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He's talking about him being righteous, the people that he died for being the unrighteous. But notice that he might bring us to God. In other words, Peter's reminding you of the story of Jesus Christ. He's pointing them back to the crucifixion. He's pointing them back to the resurrection. He's pointing them back to the life, the death, the burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. And he's saying, remember, Christ faced it all. Every adversity that's represented in this room, Christ faced it in one 
sense or another. Every single situation, you're going, every single situation, everything, everything. Where do you get that from? For Hebrews chapter 2, verse 18, jot this down. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. And I can't tell you that he faced the dilemma, white socks or green socks. I can't tell you that he faced the dilemma, blue hair or purple hair. But I can tell you that he was tempted in every way, yet he did not sin. Christ faced it all. But he did not just face it all. Christ suffered then for us. What does it say? Romans chapter 5 and verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. He's reminding us that this picture of Christ, this picture of what Christ did, not only did he face every adversity, every temptation, every problem that we face, and he suffered for us. And in the midst of that, what did he do? He overcame. He overcame. Let me take you back to Hebrews chapter 10. Quickly running out of time, but let me take you back to Hebrews chapter 10 and remind you what he remind what he tells us of what Christ did. I get so worked up, I get I lose my place. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. And the priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. He's drawing them back to this Old Testament illustration and imagery of the priest coming in on the day of atonement and the tabernacle offering the sins for offering the atonement for the sins of the people but he says in verse 12 but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin he sat down at the right hand of God waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet for by a single offering he has perfected for all times those who are being sanctified what he says right there is what Peter is looking back to and he's reminding us that through the work of Christ through the facing the adversity of Christ through Christ being faithful in all things the righteous for the unrighteous bringing us to God he has overcome so you say well Spence what does that do for me what that tells us as a church is that no matter what we face, Christ has already come, overcome our adversity. And yet he has been faithful so we can be faithful. And there's also a model and there's also an example. Why did Christ do that? Why did Christ face all of that? Why did Christ deal with all of that? Why did Christ succumb to all of that? That he might bring us to God, verse 18. It's the idea, the only reason why Christ came and lived a life, died on the cross, paid for our sins, did all that, so that he might bring us to God. I'm not trying to say that you're a savior. I'm not trying to say that you're a Messiah. But what if, what if God brings adversity to your life so that you might bring other people to God? God. What do you mean, Smith? Maybe, just maybe, he gives you that adversity in your life so that when you're going through that, your neighbors, your coworkers, your families, everybody is going, I don't understand. You're smiling. Yeah. Not because I feel good. Not because I have a good report. Because I have an amazing Savior. And by doing, by doing that, you're bringing other people to God. Do you see this? Do you see this imagery? Do you see what Peter is trying to remind them? Peter is saying that the whole, when your focus in the adversity is not the adversity, but on God's glory, it changes what you do with the adversity. When your focus and your idea is that when I face adversity, this is an opportunity to give glory to God. And this is not just an opportunity to give glory to God, but this is an opportunity to bring other people to God. Well spent. They can get to God on their own. I don't need to go through all that trouble just to get them to God. But what if, what if three million years from now 
there is a whole cacophony of voices in heaven because you dealt with six months of yuck. What if two million years from now there's a sanctuary full of saints in heaven because you face adversity faithfully. I realize that when you get in the midst of those times, I realize that the world can become very small. I realize that your attitude and your ideas can become very small. I realize that a lot of things tend to be very narrow when the troubles come. Oh, but brothers and sisters, if we could just look back, if we could just look out, if we just ponder for a moment how God may use what we are going through to bring glory and honor to Him. There's some times back in the days gone by whenever I was working nights on the drilling rig. And we were just down there by the... <coughs> Man, it skates my mind. The old schoolhouse down there. What? Tell me. Louder. What? Captain Creek. Thank you. Captain Schoolhouse. The Rackley Pad. And you would go to work. I would go to work. I'd get there at 5.30. It's already dark. It's the middle of winter time. And it's 2 degrees. Now if it's 5.30 p.m. and it's 2 degrees, what do you think is going to happen for the next 12 hours? More suck. More bad time. More just life is going to be miserable. And you get there and you would just think, you know what, 12 hours, that's it. <laughs> then I'm going to leave here and I'm going to go home and I'm going to get some warm clothes and I'm going to get some warm food. I'm going to get some warm bed. I'm going to get some sleep. This time will too pass. I can look on the back now and say, oh, it's no big deal. But I can tell you right in the midst of it, I wasn't a very happy camper. <laughs> I was thinking to myself, I should have studied harder in school. I should have made better life decisions. This is not the place that I had dreamed on being. Now you may say, well, Spence, that's trivial compared to what I'm dealing with. I'm not trying to say it's not. I'm not saying it's, trying, it's on par with what you're dealing with. What I'm saying is that compared to the sufferings of Christ, compared to the adversity of Christ, compared to what Christ has done on our behalf, whatever you and I may face in this world, it's just a little drop in the bucket compared to what Christ has done for us. And yet he was faithful and his heart was so that we might come to God. So what excuse do we have to get so fixated on our own problems and miss the fact that our problems might be the catalyst to bring someone else to God. So then how do we wrap this up? How do we think about being a different people? You see it at the bottom of your notes. Just three observations on how do we be a different people. First is we speak more of your Savior than your situation. Speak more of your Savior than your situation. I realize that your situation may be I realize your situation may be dire. I realize your situation might be terminal. I realize your situation might be unheard of. I realize your situation may be a one and a thing, a million type of thing. Speak more of your Savior than your situation. And then not just that, but when you think about how it is that we live different, we remember that we were not created to fret. In other words, fret not. Psalm 37. I remember listening to Junior Hill preach on this so many years ago. Fret not yourselves because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and, and wither like the green herb. I remember him talking about this idea that fret can take our joy, fret can take our peace, fret can take our contentment, fret can take our tomorrows, and fret can take our witness. And how many times that the fret and the worry and the anxiety steal our witness from pointing others to God. And then finally, and then we're done. Be ready for the opportunity. 
Be ready for the opportunity. You may say, no, Spence, it's adversity. No, it's an opportunity. No, Spence, it is a struggle. No, it's an opportunity. No, Spence, it is a problem. No, it is an opportunity. No, Spence, it is persecution. No, it is an opportunity. No, Spence, it's a negative thing. No, it's a positive thing. Why is it not a negative thing? Because there is nothing that this world can do to harm my soul for eternity. So there is nothing in this world that when you think about it in a spiritual sense, in the sense of eternity, there is nothing in this world that will ultimately be negative. Because one day, whether it's tomorrow or 10 years or 50 years from now, one day I'm going to stand before my creator, before my savior, and I will be ushered into eternity for the rest of my life. And this moment will be a blink in the eye. It will be a whisper. It will be a vapor. It will be a mist. And all of that stuff will be gone, and yet this life will be an opportunity for me to be ready and to get as many other people ready for the life that is to come. This life is an opportunity. Sometimes it's a good opportunity. Sometimes it's not such a good opportunity. Sometimes you like the opportunity. Sometimes you wish someone else got the opportunity. Sometimes you wish you get more of that opportunity, and sometimes you wish you don't get that opportunity again. But this life is an opportunity. An opportunity to lead other people to Jesus. And sometimes that's done in our adversity. Sometimes that's done in conflict. Sometimes that's done in upheaval. But I think Peter would come into the church this morning and he would say, don't miss the opportunity of adversity. I know some of you in this room, you have adversity in your vocation. Some in this room have adversity in your health. You have adversity in your families. You have adversity in your home. You have adversity in your marriages. You have adversity in other places. May I plead with you this morning to not see that adversity as a negative thing or something to be pitied upon, but the adversity to be an opportunity to bring glory to God. And by bringing glory to God, to bring other people to God in the face of your adversity. You bow your heads with me.